Thanks, Mark. You want to preach? Yeah, sure. You can preach? Yeah. All right. Good to see you guys. Happy fall to you. The second best season of the year. I'm not going to tell you the best one, but it ain't summer. All right? And we all know it's not winter, so there you go. All right? Uh, It's great to see you. Welcome back. Glad you're here today. Um, Luke 6, if you haven't opened your Bibles yet, that's where we're at. I want to ask you some things, some little diagnostic questions. When somebody offends you in life and you respond to them with anger, not like righteous anger, but like you're going to pay for that kind of anger, uh, why do you do that? Or when that person who offended you and hurt you, you got angry at, you, later on you hear that something bad happened to them, not, you don't want it to be too bad, but bad enough. They fail, they lose something. Why do you get a little excited about that? Why do you go, yeah, that's good? Or when somebody has acted just really selfishly towards you and time and time again, you've just felt like you've sacrificed so much and so all of a sudden you're like, you know what, I'm just gonna withhold my love from you now. I'm done. I've given too much. Why do you do that? Or when somebody lets you down You know, they really hurt you. Like, why do you want to let them have it? Why do you just want to, like, boom, stick it to them? Why is that? Let me say this. If I came out here this morning, okay, and I started speaking with an English accent, uh, that would be, that'd be awesome, okay, right? Like, that'd be way more enjoyable to listen to. I get it. I wish I did, you know? Um, But let's just say I did that, and if you knew me, you would know what? That I'm faking it wouldn't you? You would know that's not me. But if you didn't know that that was me, you didn't know anything about me, and I came out here and I was speaking an English accent, it was a proper English accent, wow, if I was doing that too, uh, you would assume what? That I'm from England, right? This isn't hard, right? That's an easy question. You'd assume I'm from England. Why? Because I am speaking with the English accent, right? We, we get the concept of what I'm talking about. If someone has a true English accent, we know that they are from England, or at minimum that they grew up immersed with English people all around them or within English culture or something that's to that extent, right? We, we get that. We get the idea where you've come from, where you've spent your time, that place shapes you into the person that you are. And I propose to you that the, that the reason why we act in these ways that I've just proposed to us and all of us, including myself, are like, yeah, I do that. I do that. I propose to you that what is primarily revealed about you when that's happening, it's revealing where you've come from. It's actually revealing how you view the world. And, and really, it's revealing what you've been shaped by. And let's just be honest especially after what Mark just read for us, we see that those reactions have shown that we are not being shaped by Jesus, that Jesus isn't the one who's shaping those sorts of responses from us, but rather we've maybe made our home in something other than Him. Uh, Guys, we were walking through our Why We Exist statement uh, to start the year. It'll be on the screen here. This is our statement of why we exist, because it's really important that we come back to this time and time again as a church, and we go, why are we here? Because if we don't know why we're here, then we should just close up shop and say it was a good run. 
Okay? But this is why we're here, and we've walked through some of this stuff already. We looked at that we, are, we exist to make disciples of all nations. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Last week, we looked at the fact that we exist to be a community that is consistently in awe of the gospel. And if you are a part of our faith community, if you're a part of our faith family, and you missed those weeks, I just want to strongly encourage you to go back and podcast those just so that we're on the same page. But guys, this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the statement that is nearest and dearest to my heart. And that is this third statement that we exist to be a community that is embodying the gospel. That we're a community that is embodying the gospel. Okay, that we're seeking to be raised, saturated, and putting down roots into the gospel. And so just so that we're all on the same page this morning, we need to know what the gospel is. I mean, if you're looking at our statement, the gospel's everywhere in that statement. So we kind of need to know what it is a little bit. And so here we go. The fact of the matter is, guys, just think about it for a second. You were made by God. You are not an accident. You didn't just show up one day and like, whoa, that was cool. That was random. No, God made you, okay? And he made you for a purpose. And that was to live in this right relationship with him to where you and I reflect his image back to him and to each other perfectly. That we live in right relationship with him, with each other, and with the world at large. And you know what? Every single one of us in this room, from the beginning of time, we've all said, you know what? I don't want to do that. I want to do my own thing. I want to live how I want to live. I don't want you to be my God. I want to be my own God. The Bible calls that sin. And so God was amazing because he didn't just say, fine, suit yourself. No, he said, you know what? I love you. And so I'm going to radically pursue you. And he sent his son, Jesus, into the world to live perfectly. He did everything God loved and never did anything that God hated. He lived perfectly for you. And then he died brutally for you. And then he walked out of the grave three days later for you. So that when you and I put our faith in him, you and I are brought back into that right relationship with God that we lost. And this is going to be our story for all eternity when we do that, okay? This is the gospel. It is good news. It is great news, okay? And it doesn't just matter for you this morning if you don't know Jesus and you want to come to know Jesus. It matters for you more than you even know when you are a Christian. Every day of your life, it matters, and so the, the point of the matter is this, that we are called as people, we see it throughout Scripture, to embody the gospel. Basically, the idea of embodying is to take an idea or a virtue or a truth and to put clothes on it. It's to put flesh and bone to it. It's to be a walking and talking demonstration of what this is about. And we understand this, because you know this morning, you know what hate is, don't you? You know what hate is. Why? Because you've experienced hate. And you know what love is this morning, too. Why? Because you've experienced love in walking and talking, breathing terms. And so as followers of Jesus, you and I are called to embody this gospel that we sing about and proclaim every single week as we gather together together in a space like this, okay? Guys, it's important to see this morning, this is the point, guys, the gospel isn't something that just changes your relationship with God. The gospel changes your relationship with others, it doesn't just change your relationship with God, it changes your relationship with everybody else. And that's the point. And so Luke 6 does an incredible job of showing us this vision. It shows us how this whole thing works, and it shows us why it works. 
And so this morning, this will be on the screen, this is a simple roadmap for where we're going. Point number one, we're going to see that the way Jesus calls us to live, we're going to see the way that Jesus calls us to live. Secondly, why we should even live that way. And thirdly, how, how you can even do it. How are you going to do it? Because it's, it's crazy. It's hard. The way Jesus calls us to live, I'm going to read again, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, this is Jesus saying this, love your enemies. It's easy. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Guys, the heart of this sermon, it's called the Sermon on the Plain, okay? Jesus comes up, it says he came to a flat place. He gives this sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. The heart of his sermon is the need for love. It's the need for love. Jesus stresses that his followers must love not just the lovely, but the unlovely. He's saying this isn't natural. We're called to love the unlovely. He uses the word enemy, right? Which nowadays, if I said, who's your enemy? You're like, I don't have any enemies. You know, that sounds like, World War II or something to you, okay? But an enemy basically is the idea of anyone in this world who is against you. They're not for you. That's an enemy. And you and I have those, right? And and others would view you as an enemy even in their life, okay? So an enemy is someone who's not for you but against you. And Jesus says, we are called to love those that you don't have natural affection for. And he uses the Greek word agape, which means love for even the unlovely, love which is not drawn from feeling like somebody deserves your kind of love, but which proceeds from the fact that you, the lover, are choosing to be a loving person. That's what it means. And this is obviously, uh, if you're human, you're going, oh, this is challenging, right? This is challenging. I mean, just consider his examples. He says, offer the other side of your jaw. That's what it literally means, the jaw. Offer the other jaw when someone strikes you on it. And what Jesus is speaking about here is an attitude. He's saying when you receive an injury, don't seek revenge. But be ready to, if need be, accept another injury from that person. In Jewish thought, guys, the cheek was a symbol of friendship. It was a symbol of fellowship. Okay? And so you would kiss someone's cheek to, to honor that as a display of your relationship with them, that it was a good relationship. So if someone, you know, punched you in the cheek, this meant that that relationship was broken, that this relationship was fractured, right? That someone has attacked the relationship. And so to have your cheek struck meant that friends were taking you for granted. That's what they were doing. They weren't giving you the respect that you feel like you deserve. They were talking behind your back, right? They weren't thinking about your needs. And Jesus is saying this. He's saying, re-offer the relationship, Reoffer it. He says, if someone takes, you know, your cloak and your tunic, right, which I love, you guys look lovely in your cloaks and tunics this morning, by the way, I just want to say that, right, if someone takes your outer garment, your coat, right, you'll need it here in a few months, someone takes it, he says, give them your shirt, okay, give them your shirt. It's like, don't, don't seek uh, to react in anger against the one who takes those things from you. Right, this is so hard because Jesus is not just calling his followers. He, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's not just calling you to withhold something. He's calling you to give something. Do you see how it's worded? He says, bless. 
pray, give. And this, this isn't an occasional sort of generous impulse that you have once in a while, but it's this idea of this constant ongoing thing that you're doing. You're constantly returning pain with blessing. Okay? Of course, we all know this, it's not always loving to give what someone's asking of you, right? So if, if my kids in the morning ask for ice cream at 8 a.m., I'm going to withhold that from them, right? I'm going to withhold that, not because I don't love them, but because I love them, correct? Right? I'm a good dad, so I'm going to give them donuts. That's what I'm going to do instead. That's what you do. It's healthier, okay? Okay, but I'm going to withhold that from them because I love them, right? It's not always loving to give, and we're all going to sit here right now, we're going to go, yeah, totally, that's why I'm not generous. That's not the point, okay? Right? We don't use that to justify our lack of love, but it's actually love that must decide whether you're giving or withholding. Jesus is saying it's love that decides that. It's not some selfish, protective regard for your possessions that is informing your decision. Jesus is saying it's love. It's love that's actually deciding that, not anger. It's love that must decide that, not hate. It's love that must decide that, not revenge. It's love that decides that, it's not hurt. That's what Jesus says. Jesus sums up his radical call in verse 31. I already read it. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Jesus, guys, he's not the first person in the world to ever utter this statement. A lot of sages and people, even around Jesus' time, were saying something like this. And even Christians and non-Christians alike in our day and age, we, we call this the golden rule. We put it in our pocket. We look at it from time to time, this kind of idea, Right? But Jesus does something very different here because everybody else in the world, especially at this time, was using the negative form of the sentence. They would say, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. And that's how we often think of it. Hey, don't do that to somebody else. You wouldn't want them to do that to you, right? That's what we say to each other. That's not what Jesus says. He says the opposite. He says, do to others. It's the positive, as you'd want them to do to you. Don't withhold. That's not love. Do, give, bless, pray. See, Jesus desires us not to be passive towards others' faults, but aggressively graceful. That's what he's calling you to. There's a photo going to be on the screen here. On Monday morning of October 2nd, 2006, a guy named Charles Roberts uh, entered a one-room Amish school in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, uh, armed with a gun. And this uh, 32-year-old man, Charles Roberts, he opened fire on 25 horrified kids in this Amish community. And he killed five little girls. He injured five more, and then he turned the gun on himself, and he took his own life. And, and 50 TV crews came to this little town. They stayed the entire week to report. It was a big deal. Every news outlet, okay? Okay. And uh, until the guy was buried, until the five girls were buried. And guys, if you didn't know this, after the funerals, all that happened with these girls, the Amish community came together and actually attended the funeral of the killer. And, and the parents of the ones who had their daughters die from the hands of this man uh, came to that killer's widow and his three kids and didn't just say, sorry for your loss, which would have been amazing, 
No, if that wasn't extraordinary enough, the grieving parents actually helped establish a fund to support this killer's family, the very people who lost their daughter by his hands. You know why they did this? They said they did this because of what Jesus had done for them and how Jesus had loved them, how Jesus had forgave them. Do you want to know something? Within a week of these murders, this story of this Amish community's response was more prevalent than the incident itself. The phrase was being thrown around within every news outlet of the Amish forgiveness that they've seen, and everyone was just awestruck. This was the central theme. It went from a tragic story to like, can you believe the response of these people? I mean, this was reported in the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, Larry King, Oprah, dozens of other outlets were astounded by this outrageous forgiveness from these people. Guys, do you see what's happening though? These people were carrying out exactly what Jesus is calling us to in these verses. He says, love your enemies. Don't just withhold, give. Guys, come on. I mean, you and I, we should feel this right now. Jesus' ways, they are not our ways, are they? They are not our ways. Because there's even some of us in this room that hear a story like that, and we're like, that was irresponsible. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And if we're reading these words rightly, then we'll feel like it's actually pretty impossible to carry this through. And I think one of the greatest keys to being able to carry this call out from Jesus is actually rooted in this perspective problem that we have, because guys, we always read ourselves as the victim in these verses, don't we? We always do. And there's kind of a good reason for that, because Jesus is talking to people saying, when you're the victim, respond in this way. And so we naturally read ourselves as the victim. That's how Jesus frames these commands. When someone does this to you, do this to them. And so we can sit here and we can think of maybe even certain people in our minds that this applies to people that you've been hurt by this morning, and you're thinking about those people, people have taken advantage of you, I mean, you could fill in the blank, and we're thinking, how can I respond to that person in this way? That seems way too hard. And that's how we're reading this whole thing, but the craziest thing is, though, is that someone else, guys, right now could be reading these verses, and they're thinking of me, or they're thinking of you, and they're going, how in the world can I respond to Josh? like this, when he's done this to me. And so as long as we only see ourselves as the victim and not the aggressor as well, this will only feel like some unattainable chore. This is, this is why Jesus flips it at the end and he says, you want them to do this to you too, right? Because you're going to do it to them. This is basically his point. He knows that we will be the aggressor too, and that you and I will need just as much grace and patience and love in return. And guys, so this is the thing, when you really believe the gospel, when you carry with you a genuine faith in Jesus, you see that you are first a sinner, and secondarily you're sinned against. So what we begin to see in the life of Christ. So let's just think about this. So what Jesus is calling us to, why would he call us to this way of life? Why would he do this? Well, he tells us in verses 32 through 34, it says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. He poses these questions. 
Why does Jesus call us to live this way? Why does he want you to live so radically when everything about us just kind of wars against these words and wants to justify our actions in some way? Why would he do this? Is he, is he mean? Is Jesus mean? Is he trying to set some like unattainable standards for you to live by to watch you fail? Is that what he's doing? Why should we live this way? Jesus gave you your answer in 32 to 34. Jesus, you guys, he is forming, he's fashioning, he is creating a radically different community in the world. He's not taking you out of it. He's making a whole new one in it. He's, he's creating this whole alternative community to be this display to the world. Right, the ESV here uses the word sinners a lot. And, and this word simply is describing people who still, in this moment, are people who are ignoring God and they're showing no allegiance to him. They're like, I just want to live the way I want to live. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says, these people, sinners, what he means. And so Jesus' point is this, even people who don't believe in me, because even people who don't follow me, they still practice relational virtues. They still do that. They're not completely horrible. Right? They love people who love them. You know, if someone wants to borrow money from them, they'll give it to them as long as they know they can get it back. Or they'll give it to them as long as they know, hey, that person has a lot of money. I might need to borrow some money someday, so I should probably give them some money. Right? Or, or I'll be gracious to this person because I kind of owe them one. You know? That one time I did this to them, I'll, I'll be nice to them in return right now. Right? He goes, we all practice relational virtues. He's like, but, but I'm, I'm not wanting to blend the lines here anymore. I'm creating this whole new community. Jesus is saying that living that way is just so natural. It's the world. If you do that, if you do what everybody else does, that's just natural. It's basically speaking Southern when you live in the South. Right? Everyone's like, yeah, that's what we do. Okay? Or, or it's, that's just human nature to us. Or if this is England and we're all speaking with an English accent, we go, yeah, of course. That's what we do here in England. Right? But he's saying it's all self-seeking. It's all self-preservation and eventually it begins to break down. Because what if someone stops loving you? What do you do? You stop loving them. Right? What if someone stops and does something hurtful to you? Well, you stop doing good to them, don't you? Right? Or when someone, doesn't, when someone doesn't pay you back, what do you do? You stop being generous to them. And so here's the thing, guys. The community of Jesus, the church, is often the place where this is practiced. We just do the same thing. Right? This is why churches break down, fall apart, experience division and hurt, because we've taken what even people who don't know Jesus do, and we've blended the lines, and we go, yeah, that seems wise, that's natural, it's what I want to do anyways. They deserve it. And we just blend the lines. And Jesus is saying, no, I want you to stand out. But not in the ways that a lot of us think we should stand out. I mean, some people want to stand out. They want to, like, you know, get all political in ways, or they want to be really judgmental, or just shame everybody who's not a Christian or something. He's like, I don't want you to stand out in that way. It's like, I'm calling you to stand out in these, like, extraordinary, otherworldly, relational response sort of ways. You should be distinct. The line shouldn't be blurred, right? He's calling us to stand out. He's creating an alternative community to live in the presence of the world. Guys, we should be people who are, like, speaking Southern, but we're living in Oregon, right? You guys will love that, I'm sure, Jeremy, okay? I mean, you, you talk to people like uh, Margaret, right? She has a great, charming Southern accent. Uh, I don't even know if she's in here, but anyway, sorry if this bothers you, Margaret. But, but I mean, people who meet Margaret, they're like, where are you from? 
Like, where are you from? Because you immediately go, like, you're not from here, okay? Like I said earlier, like, if I'm walking around town and I'm speaking English or something, people go, where are you from? They're going to do that. Why? Because people aren't speaking English in that way around here, are they? We always do this. We go, where are you from? Where are you from? Their speech makes them stand out. And Jesus is saying, not that our words should make us stand out, but our responses and our loves should be such that causes us to stand out to where when the world sees it, they go, where are you from? I, I, don't, I don't see that often around here. Where are you from? See, guys, this is our heartbeat. We believe that doing life together, that embodying the gospel is one of the most missional things that we can actually offer to our city. It's one of the missional things. It's one of the biggest and most evangelistic tools that we have because when we live as this alternative community that Jesus is calling us to here, when we live as that alternative community, we're giving each other and we're giving people who don't know Jesus the experience of the gospel. We're giving that to them. And people are going, where are you from? Where are you from? No one has ever been gracious to me like that. Why would you do that? Or, or no one has loved me like that. I mean, most people would just stop. Or people don't want to be around me. Why would you want to be around me? I don't get it. I'm a mess. I don't understand it. And we go, we don't go, I'm just an awesome, I'm just a good guy, you know? It's just who I am. I'm just a gracious person. No, we don't, nah, that's Jesus. Because I used to not be like that. It's Jesus. And what you've just experienced for me is actually just like a sliver of how just magnificent, how mind-blowing his grace really is. You've got to see it for yourself. It's like if you've seen something really amazing, like a supermoon, this will be on the screen. Have you seen a supermoon before? Right? You look at photos like this and you're like, I mean, it's hard to even see, right? But you see this moon, and you're like, you know right now, you're like, that's a big moon. Right? That's big. And it looks cool. If I really took this photo, I didn't, and I said, guys, can you believe this? You, that's a real moon. I really experienced it, and you're like, yeah, that's cool. Right? It would feel awesome. But at the same time, you go, but you've got to really see it for yourself. Right? You've got to see it for yourself. And we're embodying the gospel. We're giving people pictures of God's grace. And they're tangibly experiencing it. But we're still pointing to the source. We're still saying, but you've got to see it for yourself. You've got to see it for yourself. It's not me. I didn't put this grace in me. I received it. I'm just a dispensary of it now. And so here we go. Here's our hang-up. I'll just come out and say it. Because talking to so many people and, and myself being human, myself, I've noticed that the greatest obstacles to us being an alternative community who actually embodies this, this extravagant grace to other people is the belief that if we don't retaliate, then we firmly believe that those who will hurt us and who do hurt us will never learn the wrongness of what they have done to us. We think if I don't retaliate, they'll never know how badly this, this was, how badly this hurt, how wrong their wrongness is. And so we take it upon ourselves. We want to educate our spouses. They need to know what they've done. We take it upon ourselves and we do that to our kids. Well, they're never going to learn. 
How are they ever going to change? We do it to our roommates, our friends, our family, especially our enemies. We go, we need them to see. We need them to pay because we want them to see how bad their sin really is against me. And we think somehow this is going to change them, right? This is an obstacle. We all do this. Quite honestly, though, guys, this is one of the greatest lies that we ever believe. And it is the greatest obstacle in becoming this alternative community that Jesus is creating in the world because we look nothing like Jesus and we look a lot like every other community in the world because we hold on to that. And we say, we just want people to change. We think that's going to change them. They got to pay or they'll never change. And so I want to ask you, how will we ever start believing this? How can we ever start buying in? How can we actually do it? How can we live as an alternative community? Look in verse 35. But love your enemies, there it is again, do good, lend, expect nothing in return, your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. These verses, I think, show us that it is a full-blown lie that, quote, people will never change if we don't make them pay, because why? These verses just told you. Because that is not how God began to change you. It's like the heart of the gospel. God didn't say, you're in the wrong, I need you to change, so I'm just going to make you pay. That's not what God did. He didn't punish you for your wrongs or your sins or for all the myriad of times that you, you, you offended him, you rebelled against him. No, how did God change you if you're a Christian? How did he do that? Mercy. How did God change you? It tells you by pouring out undeserved kindness on you. And when you tasted that, your heart was transformed and it began to be resurrected. The Bible would call that becoming a new creation. Just like the Amish community who responded to Charles Roberts' horrific attack, it wasn't God's righteous punishment that led us to repentance. That's not what Paul says in Romans. He didn't say it was God's punishment that led you to repentance. He says, no, it was God's kindness that leads us to repentance. See, we've, we've got to get this. This is how God changes people. It's how God changed you. And this is how God changes us as an entire community. He does it by loving us, who were once his enemy. This will be on the screen. I'm not making this up. It says, for if while we were enemies, you and I, every one of us in this room, we were enemies of God. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He gave his son. He didn't just withhold. He gave. And now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Guys, we were enemies of God, meaning that we were against God. You were against God. You were an enemy of God. You wanted nothing to do with him because of to have something to do with God. That actually means that you would have to begin to feel the struggle of surrendering your life to him and his good authority for you, and you giving up being your own God and your own authority. That's what it means to have to deal with God. So we were enemies. We were against God. And so Bonhoeffer, it's there on the screen, says, God loves his enemies. That is the glory of his love. 
And when you begin to see that, you experience that in a whole new way. And so maybe you walk in here this morning with just like a ton of shame, a ton of guilt. Maybe you just had a weekend, you thought it was going to be great, and now you're like, what did I do? All right, please know that God's goal isn't to just let you have it this morning. Like if you're his child, he might discipline you, but he does it because he loves you. It's his love that's completely forming that. But he's not in here to let you have it this morning, hoping that you'll get your act together. There is mercy for you. And when you come to him in faith and you trust in Jesus who died in your place and you receive his unmerited grace anew this morning, that's when be- repentance begins to happen. When you experience that kindness. Guys, punishment pushes people away. Grace draws people in. But grace can only be extended if the one extending the grace absorbs the blow. Guys, God has absorbed the blow. Look at how God, this passage says, your heavenly Father has absorbed the blow. He gave you Jesus. Look at how he has been towards you, how he's constantly towards you and will be towards you if you are in Christ. Guys, this wraps around your heart this morning like a warm blanket in the dead of winter if you really see what's happening here. And when it does, it'll begin to change you dramatically, just not in some like intellectual way, you know, some sort of heady knowledge type of way, but in some practical relational ways. The gospel changes the way that you practically relate to other people. And it's his mercy that we've received. It's his grace and his kindness that softened our hearts and changed them. And so, guys, you see this morning, you see this. It's a lie that the only way that others will change is if we let them feel the same pain that they gave to us. We must not walk around telling each other that. I pray that never as followers of Jesus we would say, yeah, do that. They deserve it. I hope we would never say that. I hope we would go, no, that's not how Jesus has treated you. I know it hurts. I know it hurts. Right? The the very story that's changed us is the story that God changed us through not giving us justice but mercy. He changes not by giving us hate but love, not by giving us cursing but blessing, not by giving us revenge but reoffering the relationship. And so if this is what you've received, guys, it'll make you a certain kind of person. It'll make you a whole different kind of person. Just like if you get thrown into a pool of water, you're going to get wet. If you're walking around Phoenix in August, you're going to get hot. If you're climbing Mount Hood in December, you're going to die, right? It's cold, (laughs) right? If you're around a ton of humble people, you're going to become humble because it just magnifies your pride. You you can't immerse your life in this and not be changed by it. What you are experiencing gives you resources that you will naturally give. And the inverse is is completely true as well. If you downplay how undeserving you are of God's grace, and you think, I'm really not that bad. Thanks, Jesus, for just the little part that you saved. And you walk around like that, and you think you've got it all together, And you don't have nothing to give people other than your high standards and all your shame and judgment that you're going to give people because you say, you're not as good as me, get your act together. I wouldn't do that. And that's what you do. That's the resources you have to give is your own terrible high standard. that You're not even meeting yourself if you were seeing it. But if you see that you're an enemy of God and God loved you, 
that he didn't simply withhold from you? But he showered you with grace. And that'll change you. Jesus makes this point very dramatically. One of my favorite stories he tells. Uh, he tells a story about a man who owed another man a lot of money. Uh, he says it was the amount of 10,000 talents, which to us sounds like monopoly money, but it really is like lifetimes of income. Like you could never pay it back kind of thing. It's the point of his story. And this guy's trying to pay it back, and it, it comes time he has to pay back this loan guy, you know. And if he can't, he's going to be sent into debtor's prison, which he would go into that debtor's prison. He'd have to have his whole family go into that debtor's prison with him. And they would labor and work until they could pay all the money back. And he wouldn't be able to pay it back in his lifetime, so he was going to die. That means his kids have to keep working in this labor camp until they could pay it back, and their, their kids would probably do it. It's like an intense, outrageous amount of money that Jesus is saying this guy owes. So it comes time. This guy comes over, this, this loan shark type person. They don't call them loan bunnies. You know, they don't call them... Lone puppies, you know, they call them lone sharks, you know, the kind of people who they would send Bruno to your house and break your thumbs if you don't pay him back. Like, this is the kind of people that Jesus is talking about, okay? And this guy comes to this person who owes a lot of money, he says, it's time, pay me back. And the guy just threw himself on the ground and he pleads for mercy in the story. And this lone shark, Jesus says something happened to him. Uh, Jesus uses the Greek word splegma, which is a word that means a gut-level compassion. This loan shark has this compassion on this guy, and, and he looks at him, and he says the unthinkable. He says, just forget about it. You owe me nothing. No one in the room could believe what just happened. No one could believe it. This guy was forgiven for the first time in this guy's life. He was completely free. His debt was gone. Every debt means that there's, there's someone that had to pay for it. Think about it. This isn't just like, hey, we're just not going to worry about that debt. The guy has to absorb the debt, right? He already paid for it. So he says, let it go. It's free. You're free to go. The guy absorbs the debt. The guy's free. He runs home, right? Probably like light as a feather, free for the first time. He's, he's running home. He's just received extravagant grace. And it said, Jesus says, as he crosses the street from the courthouse, he sees a buddy who owes him three bucks. And he goes over to this guy and says, hey, I bought you coffee last week for three bucks. Tried and true. You didn't pay me back. I want that money right now. And he grabs him by the neck and he says, give me my three bucks. And the guy goes, I'm so sorry. It's been a hard week. I'll pay you back next week. And this guy looks to him and says, no, I want it now. I'm going to throw you into prison. And he throws him into prison. That's like the parable of the story Jesus tells. And every single person I imagine that Jesus was telling the story to, when they hear that part, they probably rolled their eyes. And they're like, oh, yeah, right. Like, who would be forgiven of that kind of money and then, like, be so mad at someone for three bucks? And that is Jesus' exact point. That's his whole point. Why would you not forgive that person for the three bucks? How could you do that when you've received that kind of extravagant grace? That's his exact point. See, there's, there's no way that you can have any concept of how gracious and loving and merciful God has been towards you daily 
and remain someone who isn't embodying as a dispensary of that same kind of love and grace towards other people. There's just no way. That's Jesus' whole point. And it's the power to actually live out this vision and call of Jesus here in our community that we see in Luke 6. It's the same power. Guys, people who get the gospel show that they get the gospel by becoming like the gospel to other people. And when that happens, guys, powerful things are birthed. Because all of a sudden, I'm not walking around thinking I'm trying to believe God loves me. But when I offend you, Blake, and you love me with like this love that's otherworldly, I experience God's love. And it goes from just some like idea sort of thing to a tangible experience of it. And I don't go, Blake, you're amazing. You are amazing. But Blake goes, I, I wasn't able to love like that before. I got this love from God. When you're gracious to me, when I don't deserve it, I experience God's grace in a whole new way and I see it is real. It totally is real. And you don't go, yeah, that's just who I am. You go, no, I got that from God. That's how he is towards me. This is how this whole thing works. Guys, this is, this is what we're called to as a community. We're called to be this alternative community who lives together and embodies the gospel to each other. And it's quite honestly the most missional thing that we offer to our city. It's the most missional thing. So if you would, let's all stand together, and I am going to um, read the gospel prayer over us as a final prayer, like we did last week. This is a prayer that we're praying all month as a church. I pray that you're praying this. And guys, as we go into our time of response, if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come to these tables this morning. And as you come to this table, I pray that you'll be thinking about the fact that you once weren't invited to this table, you once didn't even want to go to this table. You are an enemy of God. You wanted nothing to do with God, and God extravagantly pursued you with his grace. And as you come this morning, I pray that would affect you in a way that we would be a community of faith that is just such an alternative way of relating to each other than we see throughout the rest of this world. So I'm going to pray this over us. Father, we thank you that in Christ there is nothing we can do There's nothing we can do to make you love us more. Nothing we have done or that we'll ever do that'll cause you to love us less. God, your presence and your approval is all we need for everlasting joy. I pray that we'd firmly believe that this week, God. And Lord, as we've been thinking about all this morning, I pray that as you have been to us, God, that we would be to each other. God, that you would just stomp out the lies that we believe that are not coming from your mouth. God, that you would empower us as we've seen today, and I pray that we consistently just live in the reality of how you've been towards us and how undeserving we are of that, and that we would be changed agents of that grace as we give it to other people. God, we pray that we would go out this week and that we would measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. Lord Jesus, that we would never question your compassion and think that somehow I'm more compassionate than you are. God, you love this city more than we ever could. If we added all our compassion together, God, it wouldn't even compare. 
God, may we never doubt your power, God. We've seen you walk out of the grave. We've heard of it, we've experienced it, and I pray this week, God, that we'd see more people hearing of it and experiencing it as a result of us being here. God, we ask for a movement of your spirit in the city. God, we ask for, your, for lives to be changed. We pray you'd start that this morning in this room as we respond. In Christ's name, amen.